Hello, and welcome to Baha'i Blogcast, with me, your host, Rain Wilson. This is where I interview members of the Baha'i faith and other friends from all over the world about their hearts and minds and souls, their spiritual journeys, what they're interested in, and what makes them tick. Enjoy. Welcome back, everyone. I'm here with Sean Hinton, part two. Sean, uh, so great to have you back on The Talking Machine. Wow. Well, it's lovely to be there. I had so much fun and uh, didn't give you much of a word in edgewise last time. So uh, so we figured we'd better talk some more and cover some other things. Yes, I'm excited to talk to you about other aspects of your life, not just the Mongolia chapter of your life, but uh, so many other chapters and uh, so many other great stories. So I'm excited to uh, to dig into some of that. Uh, me too. And it's such a great, I mean, you know, you, you have such interesting people on uh, on this podcast that uh, I, I, I'd love a, I'd love to talk about some more of the, the, the things that you that you cover on this around the Baha'i faith and everything else. But I, I actually want to ask you because since we spoke, we got a bit interrupted um, and yes. you were out of town and you've had you've had quite a few weeks. I, I, can you would you tell us a little bit about that? Um, yes. Uh, yes. Thanks for asking. I don't know if I should thank you for asking, but, um, I appreciate you asking. Yeah. So, uh, my father passed away, um, since we spoke last two or three weeks ago. Um, he had a small heart attack and was going to go in for surgery and they he needed quadruple bypass surgery and um which has a pretty high success rate and so i flew up to wenatchee washington small town in washington state where he lives and i was fortunate to spend several hours with him before he went into the operating room and um basically the long and short of it is that he didn't make it um he uh it was, I won't get into all the nitty gritty of it, but uh, his heart was in too bad of a shape. His arterial sclerosis was too, uh, too far gone and they had a lot of complications. And um, uh, he was in critical care, unconscious, in critical condition uh, for about two days afterwards. And then they um, were losing him. And um, we... Uh, just uh, let him go in the hospital room. That was pretty recently. That was about two weeks ago. And then we buried him about uh, eight or nine days ago. And um, it was the first kind of major death that I experienced in my family. And uh, it was, um, it's been heartbreaking and um, also spiritually really uh, challenging and uplifting at the same time. Have you had lost anyone in your family ever, Sean? I have. And actually just the most recent sort of experience of it was during this pandemic um, when the son of my best friend in the world um, passed away. And a young man who was deeply close to our family, couldn't, you know, the closest friend of one of my daughters. Um, and through reasons of the sort of pandemic right now, we were 
we were separated. We were unable to be with these dear friends of ours. We were unable to hold them and to share mm. with them, except through prayer, except through sharing passages from the writings. And, you know, I, I've, because you and I were expecting to talk and you were valiantly imagining that we might arrange our session in between, you know, your visits well, to the I, hospital. I assumed, and, you know, you know. I assumed that his uh, his operation would be successful because most are, and so I, I thought that we could, while he was in the recovery room, you and I could finish our conversation, but it was not to be. And instead, you and I found ourselves as you and I found ourselves trading messages with with prayers, and that was all I had in in corresponding with my friend at this time, and that was all you and I could do. And I, I just wonder what, what those were that kept you going in those last few weeks. How did you, how did, how did that make part of it? Yeah, there was some very deep prayer. There was certainly um, a lot of long healing prayers while he was in the hospital and a lot of prayers upon his passing and um, the flood of prayers that came in for him from his hundreds of friends, Baha'i and otherwise, uh, were uh, really powerful and moving and beautiful. And um, there was a lot of praying going on around Robert Wilson. And uh, But the thing, Sean, that uh, I wanted to bring up was, for me, one of the most kind of beautiful uh, experiences of my life was preparing the body for burial. So myself and my um, stepmom, his wife, Carla, uh, we researched the Baha'i uh, burial and we bought a shroud, nine yards of linen, and uh, had the funeral home lay his body on the shroud on, the, on a table. And we washed the body. We put a ring on his finger. I forget the exact phrase that's on the ring, but it's a short prayer about how we were all, you know, under God's will and God's guidance. Um and we washed and prepared the uh, his his body that he had ridden around the world in for seventy eight and a half years, and it was uh, devastating. Um, uh, we were weeping, and at the same time, it was incredibly healing to have this tender kind of honoring of his body, the washing of it, the preparing of it, the saying prayers over it, the wrapping it carefully in the shroud. And later on when it was in the casket and, you know, when the casket was lowered into the ground, it was, it was so powerful to know that uh, that body had been prepared and we had kind of witnessed it, uh, witnessed it as a vessel because that's what it is. It's a soul growing vessel that you know, he rode around in that we're all riding around in. And uh, it was devastating and really powerful at the same time. I, I have never experienced that. And I guess like many people, I might have read about that and heard about that and kind of wondered and thought it sounded like a, a, a you know, what is the white linen and the silk and the, or the wrapping and the body and the ring and but the way you're describing it it's the it's the 
the the act of doing it, the the being there together, not the materiality mm. of that. Were there are there other? Would you talk a little bit about the rest of the sort of Baha'i funeral and those those things and how how you how you experience those? Yeah, well, there's not there's not a whole lot else to a Baha'i funeral. Obviously, you don't get the body embalmed. Um, you don't get the body cremated. Um, there's writings in the Baha'i faith about you know the body going back into the earth and reconnecting with the earth from where it came. Um, there is the funeral prayer that is said during the washing of the body and that same funeral prayer that's said uh, collectively um, at the at the at the funeral itself. And it's very repetitive. It's these long phrases and it's incredibly powerful and hypnotic. In some ways, it's like the long healing prayer that has these kind of repetitive refrains. Um, I don't know what makes it so powerful uh, and so important, but you feel a certain power behind it. And I just think the, in terms of the preparing of the body, the, we're so cut off from death in our modern society. Um, our ancestors for hundreds of thousands of years used to prepare bodies for burial. I mean, you can see this in the earliest evidences of human civilization when they unearth bodies and they're prepared in all kinds of ways. They're prepared in shrouds and they're wrapped in their finest clothes and they're things that on their journey that they're sent with, they're, they're given physical items and totems to continue the, their physical journey. And it's really just been in the last 100, 200 years that we've kind of dissociated ourselves from that process. And this whole idea of embalming is just grotesque. You'd fill a dead body with, with chemicals so that it doesn't rot um, it, it doesn't make, literally makes no sense whatsoever. Um, and so it was just that connection of, of the cycle of life and, uh, and a reminder of, um, how precious life is and kind of the, how, how short it is. But, you know, I wanted to say, Sean, too, that, you know, one of my regrets in life was I literally brought a microphone up to Wenatchee. Because I thought, oh, when my dad gets out of his surgery, I'm going to interview him for Baha'i Blogcast. <laughs> because my dad was a long time a Baha'i. He became a Baha'i in 1963. And, um, uh, and I had been meaning to interview him for quite some time. But, you know, I had interviewed my wife. I had interviewed my uncle. I thought, well, I don't want this to be like nepotism central here. Well, Rain's just interviewing his, his relatives. And um, so... But that's a great regret that I have. He had incredible stories, and um, he uh, he became a Baha'i in 1963. He had met a guy who was a Baha'i who told him about it just in Seattle. With him. He was hanging out with these Bohemians in Seattle, and my dad was going to the University of Washington. He was about 20, and um, uh, met this guy who told him about it. And my dad kind of didn't think twice about it. And then my dad was crossing the street in downtown Seattle and he had a mystical experience. He said that literally time stopped and he, everything slowed down and he looked around him and he said, you know, what that guy said was true. That guy talked about this new teacher. Um, he couldn't even remember the guy's name. It's like Baha'u'llah, something like that. 
in a new spiritual movement on the planet and a revitalizing spiritual force. And, and, and he just knew it was true. And so he called the Baha'i Assembly of Seattle. They were in the phone book. And, and he said, I need to meet with you. And they said, well, we meet on Tuesday nights from 7 to 10 or whatever. And so he went in and he said, I want to be a Baha'i. And they were like, well, you can't just become a Baha'i. They said, you have to, what do you know about it? He's like, well, not nothing really. <laughs> They're like, well, you can't do that. You have to study these books. You have to read these books, study them. We're going to quiz you when you come back and see if you know enough to become a Baha'i. So they gave him like the Kitabi Khan and the Gleanings and a couple other books. And, and they said, oh, and by the way, it's the Baha'i fast. So if you really want to be a Baha'i, you need to start fasting right now. And my dad didn't know what that meant. So he just stopped eating. And um, he stopped eating for three or four days. And then he was like passing out from hunger. And, you know, they didn't have Google back then. You couldn't just kind of go to a computer and say, how does the Baha'i fast work? <laughs> you know, <laughs> And... And so he he ate a Snickers bar and he felt terrible, but he ate a Snickers bar and he read the books and he came back in a few weeks and he talked about what he had learned. And they said, OK, you can be a Baha'i. And because um, this was earlier than the hippie days when lots of people poured into the Baha'i faith. He was kind of a little bit before that. And um, when my parents got a divorce, when I was about two, two and a half, my dad went pioneering to uh, to Mexico and mostly Nicaragua, Bluefield to Nicaragua which is actually the same place, same area that Hooper Dunbar had uh, pioneered a few years earlier. Um, so he was going in and a lot of people were like, oh, Mr. Hooper, Mr. Hooper was here. And uh, my dad had incredible stories of sailing up the rivers and creeks of the Mosquito Coast to teach the Mosquito Indians the Baha'i faith. A lot of them had never seen a white man before. He was in a little outrigger canoe. He got malaria multiple times, um, and he has just incredible, incredible stories from that time. And I was always begging him to compile his stories and write a kind of memoir of, of those times in the early faith. And he has some of them written down, but he never really fully wrote the whole thing down. But um, one great story was uh, he he went to this tribe, and they, they, were, they asked him, what is this... Uh, what is this baseball we've been hearing about baseball? And my dad was like, well, okay, I'll teach you. So he's like, teach us baseball. I'm like, okay. So he, he went out and he got a tree limb and he like carved it into a baseball bat. And he was looking around for balls. They didn't have any balls. They didn't have like tennis balls or any balls out there in the jungle. So, but he found this really hard fruit that was kind of like an orange, really hard. And he figured out that you could get about three good hits off of one of them before they exploded. <laughs> uh, and uh, so he got bases and they cleared out like a little, you know, farming field. And this was going to be the field. And everyone in the village lined up, the grandmothers, the infants, and they all lined up. They all wanted to play baseball. And he, he kept trying to teach them the rules. And they got the basic thing about hitting the orange and running around the bases. But they he couldn't get them to kind of understand like, no, you're out. If you, if you do a throw here and you can only run if it's an in. So they just, and he just let it go and they would just hit the ball with the bat and they would laugh and grandmothers and infants would run all around. And um, he had um, 
a lot of other uh, great stories, boar hunting. That was a, and, and then he was a great Baha'i teacher, you know, and I always hear from people of like, oh, you know, my uncle was the one who taught my family the faith. And he first heard about it from your dad in the early seventies at a fireside. And so, uh, there's literally, you know, hundreds of people, um, that can trace their kind of spiritual roots, uh, to Robert Wilson and in the Washington area, um, especially in the, in the early seventies when people were interested in seeking a spiritual path and interested in, uh, and becoming a member of a religion. So, um, and he was a painter and a writer. He wrote science fiction books. He wrote technical manuals. Um, and, uh, he especially loved being a painter. Uh, he was never any good at selling his paintings or selling himself or going to gallery openings and, meeting curators and trying to sell his stuff and hawk his wares. But um, he was a great painter. You can find his work online on his website and whatnot. And, um, you know, it's, um, it's what another thing that's really interesting, Sean, for me is, you know, I had a lot of issues with my dad. We, we had a complicated relationship. There were a lot of divorces. There were a lot of family ups and downs. Um, uh, and that being said, we worked that stuff out. We worked really hard on it. We even went to therapy together on some of the stuff that we had to work out. And, um, and really the last 10 years were very peaceful and loving and connected. And, and I'm so grateful for that, that everything had been said and everything had been laid on the table and, we were able to just really appreciate each other and love each other and uh, support each other. And, um, uh, but what was so interesting too, is that when he passed and when he was passing and when he passed, I, I was not able to see his, any of his negative qualities. Mm -hmm. I was not able to revisit even in the slightest way, any resentments, all I saw, all I missed, all I witnessed all I connected with was his positive qualities, which were numerous, you know, um, you know, the joy he brought wherever he went. He was one of those people, like if he went into a room, he always made it a better place. He would have a joke. He would have a story. He would be loving. He would bring support. He would bring encouragement to every room he went into. And, uh, I miss that. And I, uh, and marvel at that, you know, in retrospect, um, he always supported me in the arts. I wouldn't be an actor, an artist without his support. Um, he was incredibly kind, very gentle. And, and you like him. And the thing that really moved, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was going to ask you, are you, do you see him in you? Are you, are you like him? This I, I could, I could be a lot more like him. You know, honestly, I could, I could learn a lot more, uh, from, from him. Um, he's, he's much more gentle and patient than I can, I can, I could be a little bit vociferous and impatient. I don't know if that's the correct use of the word vociferous, but hell, what the hell? Um, and, uh, you know, I try and, and, and uplift a room. I try and be encouraging, positive, uh, 
but uh, he just did it so effortlessly and so naturally. Um, and he and he had gone through, you know, one thing that's warrants saying like his childhood was out of Charles Dickens. I mean, it was horrific how he was treated. Um, his dad would leave him and his sister at home by themselves for weeks at a time without any food in the house. Um, I mean, the stories just go on and on. Uh, uh, just horrific abuse that caused a lot of trauma, but um, it was amazing how he was able to move beyond that. But but the interesting thing was like, none of his negative qualities have even arisen in, in the slightest degree. And that really reminds me of this whole Baha'i concept of what you take with you when we leave these meat suits is our good qualities. You know, our, our negative qualities, and he didn't have many, don't get me wrong, it's not like he was this horrific guy, but just whatever issues we had, um, we leave that stuff behind. You know, Teherzadeh uh, was doing a talk on the soul and he talked about how, you know, negative qualities we have are like poverty. They're, they're not something you bring with you. You can't go into a house bringing your poverty. You know, you can't go somewhere. You're like, here's my, hey, hey, take a look at my poverty. Like you bring what you have and what he had was so much positivity and, and, and love. And, and so that's what I'm witnessing as he's going on his journey. Mm. There are so many metaphors in the Baha'i writing for passing into the next world you know the bird that's freed from its cage there are there are so many beautiful metaphors when when you wrote to me about his passing you you sent me one the precious river has joined the mighty sea and i just i thought that was so beautiful and i wonder how how, how do you imagine him now how how have you thought about his passing I've heard people talk about it, people graduating, and you know. But I just, I wonder what you, what it felt like. What did you, what do you, how did you, how do you imagine it? Well, I wanted to uh, read you that prayer that you just quoted. So let me bring it up here. Um, this prayer I had never seen before, and Erica Toussaint Brock. Uh, who's a former National Spiritual Assembly member of the Baha'is in the United States. She lives in Oregon. She heard about his passing, and she sent this prayer from Abdul Baha. And it goes, He is God, O peerless Lord. Praised be thou for having kindled that light in the glass of the concourse on high. For having guided that bird of faithfulness to the nest of the Abha kingdom. Thou hast joined that precious river to the mighty sea. Thou hast returned that spreading ray of light to the sun of truth. Thou hast welcomed that captive of remoteness into the garden of reunion and led him who longed to look upon thee to thy presence in thy bright place of lights. Thou art the Lord of tender love. Thou art the last goal of the yearning heart. Thou art the dearest wish of the martyr's soul. Um, how, do, how did I experience him? Well, 
Oh, the thing I was I was I was going to say earlier, which just popped into my head right now, um, and I'll get to your question, is one last kind of ode to my dad, a testament to my dad, and something that I really learned from him is I've met hundreds, if not thousands, of Baha'is in my days, and no one that I've met, of course, we can't really know this, we can't quantify this inside. No one that I'd ever seen had as deep a devotion and connection to Baha'u'llah as my dad. His steadfastness um, and his just deep root, rooted connection to Baha'u'llah, love for the personage, the prophethood, the the mission, the the the, the person, prophet of Baha'u'llah was just unshakable. He would read from the gleanings. He had the gleanings by his bed. It was just dog-eared. He would read it over and over again. He would pray with incredible fervor. And he reminded me of the Dawnbreakers. My dad reminded me of some of those early, early believers. And just like, I've just been reading about the story of Ahmad, the, who the tablet of Ahmad was written for, like his devotion is so pure-hearted it was just absolutely unshakable um and people come from the faith they go from the faith their faith is tested they have issues here they have issues there um and i truly believe that it is our personal connection to baha'u'llah that keeps our rudder moving forward and we often lose that you know we get caught up in social teachings and how to sum those up and the interactivity of Baha'i social teachings with the current social mores and social beliefs in contemporary society. And we kind of get in that world and lose that kind of, as Shogi Effendi calls the mystical connection that, that binds man to God, uh, which is through the manifestation. Um, but how do I, perceive him now it's interesting i i definitely feel like i have an ally on the other side and i have definitely felt his presence at times i felt it in the funeral i felt it a couple of times when we went and visited his grave site um and i've felt it when i've had times of expressing extreme emotion um uh and just just a force of love you know i just i Picture him in the concourse on high, you know, as a force of love uh, that is there for me, you know, like a love battery on the other side that I can, I can connect to uh, when needed. And I haven't, I haven't gone there yet very much right now. I'm just kind of still uh, reeling. And I'm frankly surprised that I could talk this much about him and not break down into tears, but um I've just done a lot of processing of my feelings over the last couple of weeks. And, um, yeah. You're a dad now. How, how are you, how are you a father? How does your father affect how you're trying to be a father? That's a great question. Um, do you sort of feel, do you feel think, him as a father, as you're parenting? You know, in the, 
I would say that the main thing that my father brought to me through my life was, you know, when my parents got a divorce, I was two years old and he wanted to keep me and he fought hard for me and, and, uh, really believed that he needed to parent me. And, uh, so I, we have an especially strong bond because essentially I lost my mother at age two and stayed with my father. I really didn't see her very much till I was about 14 or 15. So, um, he was always there for me. And I think that like, that is one thing I, I want for my son to know and to feel that I'm always there for him. I have his back. He can rely on me whenever he needs. And, you know, that is a very strong, that is a strong force. I mean, of course I want to be more than that, but that was one thing when I look back on his life that I was incredibly moved by that. My father was always there for me if I needed support, if I needed love, if I needed a basement to stay in because I was unemployed. And if, you know, he never had much money, but if, you know, if I needed a couple hundred bucks, he would send it to me. And, you know, um, and I want Walter to know that I'm there for him. Um, and that is going to be unshakable. I was think about how enthusiastic my dad was, how he just he just sort of was and is enthusiastic and and sort of encouraging about what I do. And I never feel criticized. And that has been something that I aspire to. I'm not sure I'm good at it with my kids. I feel like I, I, I'm, I feel like I, I, I don't live up to that. But it, it's, I have this sense in my um, always of that example around me. Just that sort of, I, I aspire to be trying to sort of live up to that because I know how powerful that is to be just encouraged mm. to be just to be un, you know we talk about unconditionally sort of love just for who you are um and i i hear yeah. that in your voice i hear that sort of that love and you know uh, I, I forget who brought it up on the baha'i blogcast but i've heard a couple of baha'is talk about that word encouragement like and someone said that you know if if the Baha'i faith could be summed up in one word, it would be encouragement. And you always get that from the greatest Baha'i teachers and, um, and kind of the wisest Baha'i exemplars. Um, and this is a good natural transition into your, <laughs> into your life, because tell us a little bit about your father, uh, who's an actor, uh, Philip Hinton, who I had the honor of, of getting to hang out with at a Baha'i conference in the Czech Republic about, 10 or 12 years ago or something like that but uh uh how did your father become a baha'i we're gonna let's, let's keep it on the on the fathers we're gonna make track. make this a a, a a conversation about fathers well that's a good that's a great a great theme so my father was was born in in the uk uh during the second world war and uh he and his his parents, who were uh, his father, who was a, a an East End Jewish tailor, 
from a great tradition of of uh, tailors who who plied their trade in the East End of London, Polish emigres um, mm. from the previous century, um, moved again and took the opportunity to go to South Africa. Uh, it was a period mm-hmm. where they were encouraging immigration from the UK. They would give them, can you imagine, would give them a, a pound to uh, to get on a boat and they could get a passage to South Africa rather for a pound. And uh, mm. he and his parents, when he was one or two years old, moved uh, to South Africa and set up uh, there. And my father grew up in, in, in Cape Town um, where my grandfather... Um, set up a tailoring business. And, you know, my father describes a, a childhood. He loved his father very much and his mother, but they were quite distant from them. I, 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 my father talks about being sent to boarding school a block away from the house they lived in uh, and that he mm. has, you know, talked on many occasions with much emotion about having about seeing his father walk to work past the window from the boarding school and feeling, you know, not understanding why they would, you know, why he was there. Uh, and he grew up uh, and, and at school was told he, was, he wasn't smart, was told he was, you know, good with his hands, but he'd never really amount to much, was told that, uh, you know, he was really discouraged, <laughs> Um, all the time during school. And in fact, you know, didn't really, you know, didn't finish all his schooling and, and went off and and started his career, found he could act. Uh, and at a very young age, found himself acting and doing work on radio. And, um, and he started uh, working in the theatre uh, and, uh, and on radio in South Africa. Um, and, uh, as a young man, 17, you know, uh, 18, beginning to, uh, you know, beginning to work, um, in, in the industry just from scratch. And in the course of that, he, uh, found himself working and helping a very renowned, uh, disc jockey, uh, on South African, uh, airwaves, a man called Lowell Johnson. And Lowell Johnson was one of the early uh, American pioneers, Baha'i pioneers, to South Africa. Now, mm. in those days in South Africa, the apartheid system was so divisive that groups of people, as you know, Rain, could only gather either as whites or as, as blacks or as coloreds, then, then called them the sort of the, the, the mixed race community, um, but they could, they were divided along color lines so severely that it was sort of impossible for the Baha'i community to function in an integrated way and to, exp- to 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 function as it as it is meant to. And so, the Guardian, having consulted with that community, told them that, with much regret, because they were forced to really focus the efforts of this community on on one or other, that actually they should not make efforts to teach the Baha'i faith to the white community in South Africa. Instead, they should, they should focus only really on, on, on inviting into the community people from the black community, regrettably having to make mm. that decision, not, of course, wanting to. And so 
Lowell Johnson was working very closely with my father, who was an absolute jazz fiend and had got Lowell interested in jazz and they did a program on jazz. And my father was was unhappy and he was young and he was experimenting with ideas and with, you know, lifestyle and all of these things. And he was unhappy and he was searching and Lowell could see this. But Lowell wasn't meant to share this his faith with with this young man because of this this color ban <laughs> and uh, so what Lowell Johnson used to do was he 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 used to write on little scraps of paper little passages from the Baha'i writings not attributing them and he would pass them to my father in the sound booth and my father would read these and would find them so fascinating now I don't know if you remember but when mm. we spoke a couple of weeks ago and I described to you how I found myself teaching the first young Baha'i in Mongolia under other straightened circumstances. I wrote mm-hmm, little mm-hmm. scraps of, of the Baha'i writings on a little piece of paper and I used to give them to her. And it was in a direct memory of how my father learnt the faith um, without knowing initially about the name of Baha'u'llah or about Abdul Baha or about any of the teachings of the, of the faith except for these prayers. That, that that idea came to mind. And that's how my father became a Baha'i in, in, and, and how he learned about the faith. And it was only when he decided that he was moving to the UK to pursue his acting career that Lowell was able to tell him about the Baha'i faith. And he became a Baha'i. He mm. declared at about 18 uh, in South Africa as, I think, the first white youth to become a Baha'i in uh, in, in South Africa in the early days wow. of our community and then left mm. a few weeks later to, to move to the UK and found his way and got his first acting jobs and auditioned for the Royal Shakespeare Company and, uh, and with his having met my mother in the theatre, my mother was a ballet dancer, having trained at the Royal Ballet School and, and worked in, um, you know, in, in, the, in the ballet in London. Uh, she and he, she was a, a dancer in the musical show, in a musical that he was in, and uh, they met. And they found this extraordinary uh, shared love for the Baha'i faith. And it was really, they got to know one another through my mother's exploration of the Baha'i faith. And uh, she became a Baha'i also. Um, and uh, 1963, just after the Universal House of Justice was elected, um, before they were married... Um, they went on pilgrimage together. And I found mm. in the guest book in Bachi uh, their two names and signatures. Um, and they went as, I guess they were engaged at the time, um, they went on pilgrimage together at a time when only nine Western pilgrims went on pilgrimage in any group. And the Western pilgrims used to were invited to sleep the night at the mansion of Bahji. They used to travel out wow. to Bahji and they used mm. to sleep the night and they would leave their names in the in the guest book and then they would go and visit the shrine of Baha'u'llah. And so I found my parents, you know, uh, pre-married names <laughs> there in that book. Mm. Um, mm. And I was born a few years later uh, in Stratford-on-Avon uh, while my father was at the Royal Shakespeare Company. And then we moved wow. to Australia uh, at about seven or eight. I think, you know, my father uh, was working in the theatre. My mother, having had two of us, 
uh, had had sort of finished her ballet career. And I think it was tough. My father was working in the theatre, but he was a, you know, a, a, a reg- like all actors, regularly unemployed, mostly unemployed actor, even going from job to job. Yep. I mean, most of your days and hours are waiting for the phone to call from your agent, and his life mm-hmm. was no different. But I think in the 70s in the UK, it was a tough time. It was tough economically and young children trying to make a living in in London. And I think they, you know, my father, having grown up and been in South Africa and sort of looked to a new direction. And my parents decided they, they, they wanted to pioneer. And if you can believe it, in 1974... Australia was one of the countries in the world that needed Baha'i pioneers. <laughs> Hard wow. as it is to imagine that you could pioneer to Australia, but they did. Yeah. Uh, and they took their two little uh, boys and we got on a plane in Christmas in 1974. A whole bunch of reasons why we had to quite go quite suddenly because the visa laws were changing. And um, I remember it so clearly. You know, we went from this pelting rain and wind and my mother in tears at the airport in Heathrow. And the next thing I remember was it was like a hundred and something degrees and we were staying in a with a Baha'i family in the far west of Sydney and I could, we couldn't have been more different. And, uh, and we made our lives there in Australia. And mm. so that mm. was... Uh, and, you know, I grew up in a, in a loving... Uh, Baha'i family, I really did and uh, my parents have been you know, my father was I mean, you know being an actor it's a difficult such a difficult profession because you can't you, you need so many other people and so many other circumstances to come together for you to be able to ply your trade, you know, unlike a musician who at least if he has his violin or she has a piano you know you you can you can make music but um Mm -hmm. an actor needs all these other things and so he um slowly you know made his made his way in the in the uh in in the acting profession in in australia then and tried to sort of rebuild a a career in a new place which is always very difficult and i have many Mm -hmm. memories of you know of of you know I, i looking back on it i realized that there were very difficult times for my my parents, um, my mm. financially, and what an incredible sacrifice it must have been to have left a, a very exciting career in the UK and to to go to this new place where you didn't know anyone and everything started from scratch. Right. But I, I I I look back on it and I realize those things, but I never experienced them. I just thought that my parents were having a fantastic time and. You know, my dad thought it was just so cool that he was getting up early in the morning and was going to deliver milk and I could go with him and do a milk delivery run. And looking back on it, I was like, wait, what a second. He was doing milk delivery run to make ends meet as a family in the early days. And and yet it was just another great adventure that we were on. And so I have very happy mm. memories, very happy memories of childhood. And mm. like I said, mm. you know, just... We have that in- we have that in common as well. My dad was uh, worked uh, all kinds of odd jobs, but for many years as a in a sewer construction company, you know, doing sewer construction. And 
to support his family and to try and support his career as a painter and a, and a writer. And, uh, and I thought of it the same way. Oh, cool. He's going to go work in the sewers. And <laughs> Isn't that <laughs> you know? wonderful? He, and he just he, made it, made, he never it made it fun, right? Made it an adventure. Right. Right. So, um, Shauna, I want to skip ahead a little bit and, and kind of dig into your life story now. So thank you for that backdrop. And then you're a music student and a musicologist. And the thing I'm trying to wrap my head around, because really the focus of this podcast specifically, although I rarely state it, is the, the union of one's work and one's faith and how one's work in service and one's faith in service kind of dovetail and integrate and the, the struggles with that and the successes with that. And your, your career, I can't even, it makes my head spin. I can't even keep up with it. You know, you're a, you're a musicologist and then you're working in film and also working in finance and then film and finance. And then finally working in the kind of nonprofit uh, foundation sector so can you just talk me through that a little bit? Can you kind of fill us in? I know this is going through decades, but how do you go from a nerdy musicologist studying in Mongolia from part one to, uh, to film and finance and this whole other world, George Soros, uh, that, you, that you're working in? I don't think I ever said I was a nerdy music. I, I imagine myself as a very cool musicologist, but but I'll I'll, I'll you're a dapper. Thank yes, you. Yes. I'll I'll let you get away with that editorial. Uh, yes, fair enough. Um, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna take it back to to parents and say uh, this this encouragement again. I, I don't think my parents ever told me that I couldn't do something, so I I never learnt not to. <laughs> not to be able to try something. It's a great gift. It's an incredible gift, that encouragement and that sort of sense of uh, seeing possibility and not um, being afraid of failure somehow, I guess. Um, so that's right. So I, uh, I was a young kid and, you know, I was wanted to be an actor like my dad and um, so I used to do that stuff as a kid. And then I, I, I found out there was a high school you could get into if you, um, if you were a musician, it was a specialist musical high school. And my, my, I said to my parents, I want to go to this school. And instead of saying, well, that's not such a great idea because you don't actually play a musical instrument, which many parents mm -hmm. might have said, um, they said, sure, go for it. Why not? You can do it if you want, if you're really going to work at it. <laughs> So it turned out I did play. I played the recorder like every other little kid at, at school, but I had always been very good at it. And so um, I went and my parents got me some special lessons. And actually, it turned out I was very good at it. And uh, uh, long story short, I... So you could have been a professional recorder player. Well, I was a professional recorder player. You were a professional recorder player. Not many player. people know this, but thank you. <laughs> I... Um, I did, yeah. I did my my uh, my undergraduate degree um, as a in a as a performance degree in early music uh, as a recorder major. Um, somebody should have told me 
that I couldn't do that. But as I say. Okay. Do you have a recorder sitting there in that office nope, somewhere? No, 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 none at all. In fact, none in the Oxfordshire area. So unfortunately, I can't indulge you with that uh, request, sadly. Oh, no, 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 no. no. <laughs> we, need, we need to hear you play the recorder. Another this day. Is, this is too good. Another day. This is too good. So I did. I went to, I went to the UK to, to do my uh, undergraduate as a, as a music student. And as you know, at the end of that, I, I had this episode in, uh, in Mongolia. Uh, way at the end of my time in Mongolia, having started a little business and married along the way, too many, too many stories there to tell, um, we returned to Australia. And I honestly, I didn't know what I was going to do, Rain. I, at this stage, I was nearly 30. Um, and I had two degrees in music and had spent seven years in Mongolia. And I was, I had great stories. And people wanted to take me out and, you know, ask me, tell me, tell me, tell the stories, talk about it. But nobody would give me a job. And so I interviewed for everything I could possibly find. I interviewed for a bank. I interviewed for an ad agency. I interviewed for really, you know, I was uh, I was I was up for anything. And um, one job I interviewed through I, someone I met at, a, at, a, at an event um, was a management consulting firm. Uh, and they had an entry path for people with unusual backgrounds. Um, and I was incredibly lucky and I and I, I got into this very prestigious uh, management consulting firm. And that was like a, a, a sort of a whole completely new chapter in my life and I learned a whole new set of skills. And I suddenly I found myself learning about finance and business and, you know, building spreadsheets and advising companies. And, and a lot of the work that we were doing and I was able to do because of my background was in the media. So I was working with this management consulting company and we were helping newspapers and television companies and we were doing all of this. And so it was kind of not too much as a surprise when I left. Uh, I had this opportunity to go run a film studio. Uh, I, was, uh, I was invited to leave this consulting firm and, um, and, and, and become the managing director of Ealing Studios, which is the oldest film studio in the world predates Hollywood. And uh, there was a group of uh, investors that were buying the studio and sort of relaunching it. So I had a stint working in film and TV. And, and that was, uh, that was felt close to, to my roots. It felt, you know, very satisfying uh, to, to work in that area. Um, but then, uh, and, and from that I had set up, I, I left and I set up a, a, my own little, um, sort of advisory business that was helping people who were buying and selling media companies in, in the UK. And then we had this um, itchy feet again. And, and in fact, maybe in a parallel again with my parents, um, this idea of going to China arose. China was a place that we had been fascinated with. We had read about. We were, you know, of course, from the time in, in Mongolia, we visited and went backwards and forwards through China many, many times. But really this, it's, it felt like a place that was changing and whose change was affecting the whole world. And mm. it felt like a, a, just an extraordinary and exciting place to be. And so we were, we made the decision, my wife and I, in the course of a 10 minute phone call once, without any planning beforehand, I was visiting Beijing, um, doing some due diligence on a, on a company in China. And 
I'll tell you this story. And I, and I attended a, a banquet. And at this banquet, uh, for, for a launch of a, of a property, new property, it was a kind of a big corporate event. I found myself sitting at this table, one of the high tables, and uh, around these head table, there were this incredible group of sort of chief executives and, you know, leaders, captains of industry, really, you know, a sort of who's who in, in, in that part of the world. It was an amazing group of people. And the conversation that I heard around that table was really shocked me because instead of people talking about their private jets and the money and the currency and the politics and things, I found that this group of people were talking about the moral education of their children and they were talking about the soul of of their country and and they were talking about spiritual ideas and and things in a in a way that really shook me it it didn't meet my sort of preconceived ideas of that conversation in a place like china at a place at a time like that and i thought this is unlike this is this is something special this is an incredible time and i had a real desire to to you know be part of and and be a sort of witness to what was going on in China. And I don't mean to suggest that that's all people do, but it, it was a, my experience of, of China in that time was that there was a, you know, at this, a, along with this incredible rise of materialism and this incredible sort of, you know, economic growth, that rather surprisingly and unlike many other parts of the world, that there was a, a an equal kind of explosion in the interest in spiritual matters and and people turning and inquiring and and being curious and so mm-hmm. uh, that was just very exciting to me and so we uh, I called my wife from the balcony of this of dinner and I said you know I've I've got it you know we, what are we doing in London we got, we've got to experience this is amazing um, and so my beloved wife 10 minutes later we had agreed that we would move to china and so we did we put our kids uh and then our three daughters and ourselves and we moved out to beijing and we didn't have a job but we figured that it would be an amazing experience and that in the course of doing that you know we would at least learn the language and maybe we would come back to the uk a few years later if it didn't work out and in the end we spent nine years in beijing and it was, and there's always a yurt in Mongolia waiting for you in case you need it. Well, to just I do have a, there. That's my that's my golden parachute is uh, is is uh, is to return to my my goats in Mongolia. So that was that was China, and and we went to China without a job, and so consequently, you know, apart from enrolling in some Chinese lessons, we didn't really know where what would happen next, and so um, as it happened, the the skill set that I had that people were interested at that moment at that time and the thing that i found work in funnily enough was was connected back to mongolia and uh i found myself uh, as mongolia was developing these natural resources and china was growing um i found myself with a with a, strangely enough if you can believe it and and i and i i it was my knowledge of mongolia my fluency in the mongolian language uh combined with my background at in consulting and finance um, that was this sort of unique skill set at that particular moment. And, you know, the thing that strikes me, Rain, is how little we know about 
the future. We we make plans so carefully and we sort of strategize as if we as if we know the different steps we can take. But there's no college counselor could have told me, you know, young man, the best way to get from studying the recorder to working in, you know, mining is if you go to Mongolia and then, you know, I mean, that's just, that's, that's crazy, <laughs> you know, but my steps were, and I'll list them out because you listed them, but you left a bunch out, um, were, uh, I trained as a musician. I spent seven years living in Mongolia, uh, during which time I started a travel business. I joined a management consulting firm. I ran a film and TV studio. Uh, I worked in mining and natural resources with an investment bank. And then as we were finishing up in China with this strange sort of career, having gone from the right brain to the left brain to the right brain, having worked in, you know, sort of socially oriented work to financial to, you know, all these different things, um, I, you know, had a headhunter approach me with just an amazing opportunity that kind of brought all of those things together. Uh, and right now I work for one of the largest... You're mining recorders. <laughs> I work for one of the largest foundations in the world, um, uh, which is the philanthropy of George Soros called the Open Society Foundations. Um, mm -hmm. And you know what's interesting about it is it's what the only one of the top 100 foundations in the world by size that is named after an idea and not its founder and not, you know, mm. not, not, not. So it's such, it's so interesting. And it's named after this, this, it's, you know, it's called the open society. It's this idea of open and transparent and plural societies. And so uh, I head up the, um, uh, I'm the co-director of the all the economic justice and economic development work that the foundation does. Mm. In fact, that's a, uh, a, a an area of work that I created in the foundation. And I also head up the team that makes investments um, to advance the strategy. So we invest in companies not to make a profit in them, but we invest when there's a company that can um, can do some good in the world. And so it's a it's an amazing job that's brought together my desire to be of service to humanity, my uh, professional skills, my sort of entrepreneurial experience, my sort of global view of the world. We work in, you know, 107 countries in the world <laughs> as a foundation. Um, so it's, 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 a, it's a job that brings all of those things in a sort of coherent way together. Sorry, that was a long uh, answer to a question. You didn't, you didn't, you didn't think I was going to stop, did you? you said, <laughs> wow, that's that's an incredible career path that you've had. And I guess one of the things it brings up for me is when I speak to young people, there's so much pressure these days uh, for young people in high school and in college, university um, to um, achieve, to get good grades, to get into the right school, then to get the right apprenticeship and the right internship and the right... Uh, and and I understand that the job market is very different now than it was when we were getting out of college in the 80s. Um, and I often say, like, you know, back when I was graduating from college, like, if you wanted to be an architect, you could go get a degree in an architect and get B's and A's and you could 
graduate and then you could just go around town wherever you lived and hand in your resume and get a job and be an architect. And it wasn't, uh, it doesn't really work that way anymore. So there is this tremendous amount of pressure, but I love the idea that by the age of 30, you, you hadn't even found your career path. And I always say that to young people, just like, you know what, take your time getting your education. Don't, you don't have to rush through it. You don't have to have the perfect internship at age 22 and the perfect job at 23. Um, you're, you'll find your path, um, travel, see the world, read, meet people, gain life experience, and, and yes. doors will open for you. Do you have anything to say on, on that? Yes. My, what I have to say about that rain is yes. And my poor children have heard me say this to them all ad nauseum. And I don't know whether my, I don't know whether I'm a, you know, whether I'm helping them and just being encouraging enough as a father, like we've been talking about to, to, to just be supportive because I, I desperately want that for them as well and want them to have that space and feel you know the privilege that you have when you're young to 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 absorb and to do things and to travel and to simply uh explore the world um because i i took full advantage of that in my own life and can't help but think that it that it paid off and and continues to pay off in so many ways um you know the 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 thing that I mean I thought of when you when you asked me that question was about you know what we do when we choose when we make decisions that that we we often think that there is a sort of a a trade off we have to make we have to choose the next job incredibly carefully because you know one thing will give us more you know chances for service or one will give us more chances for and you know we we think about these things in a very sort of zero sum way i i tried to to i i've i'm and i've experienced that too as i've gone through my career trying to make a choice and thinking well you know i i which of these opportunities which of these choices is going to give me you know is this job going to have a better you know opportunities for service is it going to and you know the the I once asked this question of uh, a very dear and a very special uh, Baha'i um, who's known to, to many of us as he was a member of the Universal House of Justice for so many years, um, Mr. Ali Nakhchavani. And I, I had the opportunity to ask Mr. Nakhchavani about a particular choice I was facing in, in my life. And it was really about whether I should be, you know, working with a big company, institution, you know, sort of, you know, one of these big you know, sort of corporate entities or whether I should be out there in a, in a small sort of startup environment and doing something that maybe I had much more freedom to, to sort of do things, you know, in a way that might be, you know, consistent with my Baha'i ideas or values as I imagined that. And he launched into a story about some historical figures in the faith, in fact, you know, and, and was talking about their lives and about how they had these extraordinary lives of detachment and how they had achieved all these extraordinary victories in the early days of the Baha'i faith. 
and I was kind of mystified. And I have to think at one thing, one one point, I thought to myself, maybe he didn't understand the question. You know, maybe Mr. Nagyavani is an extraordinary man, but maybe he sort of, maybe he's, maybe he just, maybe I didn't ask the question properly. <laughs> and I went away and reflected on what what he'd said, and I went back and I and I I spoke to him the next day, and. I checked with him and and what he was saying to me was that I was asking the wrong question. Mm. That to think that what matters is what we do is to ignore how much more important is how we do whatever it is that we do. And, you know, we focus all of our energy and all of our sort of feeling of control that we have over choosing what we do Whereas in actual fact, how we show up, the, the degree of detachment we have or the sort of desire we have to be of service to people, to do work performed in the spirit of service, as Abdu'l-Bahá says, mm-hmm. in a way that rises to be the highest form of worship, that fantastic quote of Abdu'l-Bahá's, um, seems to me, you know, and was what I took away from his answer, infinitely more important than the particular company or the particular place or even job that we hold. And, you know, it's, it's obviously it's easy to say, but I think it's true. It's even true at school. You know, I think with my own children, we've put so much time and thought into sort of which school is going to be just the perfect fit for our children and how we have the luxury of being able to sort of try and choose where we live in order to find the right school. Whereas in actual fact, you know, how kids go to school, if kids go to school with the right attitude, with the thirst for learning, with the hard work, with the energy, with the, you know, they can thrive almost anywhere. Um, mm. and, and, and so, and, and to me, that's a great leveler as well, because what it says is that you, you don't only get to be of service to humanity if you get this job or if you're in this particular place. So, you know, it says that, Everybody can be of service. Everybody can contribute something special. And and I think one of the great things that we've learned during COVID-19 has been that people we used to take for granted, people who are delivery drivers or bus drivers or, you know, checkout uh, folks at, at, at supermarkets are performing work that's really vital to, to us and they're doing it in a, in, a, in a spirit of service. So that's something that's really affected me and I, I guess in a way made me think less about my choice of job um, and more about what I make of the opportunity that I have in front of me. It also has made me realize how precious the opportunities and the, and the, the things that I do outside of work are as well. I mean, some of the things that give me the most joy in my life uh, right now are these very local, you know, opportunities for discussion and study and service and community that I have around me here in in my neighbourhood in in Oxford. These you know study circles that we do as Baha'is and you know that we've been um, able to keep going through uh, through this uh, pandemic lockdown by doing them virtually. But I just that person-to-person contact. And I'm glad you're bringing this up, Sean, uh, because 
this is something I wanted to ask you about from previous conversations that we've had. I know that you're very involved in Ruhi and devotionals and core activities and community building uh, exercises. And, uh, you know, frankly, a lot of Baha'is that run multinational foundations either don't have the time or kind of feel that that kind of work maybe is beneath them. Um, and you're very actively involved uh, in building community. So what does that look like for you? Well, I have to do it on the weekends and, um, you know, organize it uh, in times when I'm not traveling, but then, you know, the pandemic fixed that. So I don't travel anymore. <laughs> um, you know, one does have to work around um, one's travel schedule or one's, uh, you know, one's work schedule. But it's funny, you know, I find that whether it's participating in those core activities in the Baha'i community, whether it's, you know, some other avenue of service, something happens when you when you spend time on those things that enlarges the 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 time available to you. I don't know. It's like it's not like one of those pie charts where you can spend twenty two percent on family life and twenty seven percent on work, but somehow the pie gets bigger or something happens. I don't know, but it, I, that's been my experience, and I find that it's such a source of energy and such a source of joy um, that it kind of makes other things possible. Maybe it makes you more productive. I don't. I don't know what the uh, what the maths of that is, to be honest. But it is true, and I have found, although I work on these very big projects on a very global scale, I'm increasingly finding that it's the small things that we do in our family, in our local community, in these small study circles and, and groups as part of the Baha'i community and working with others in the community, broader community here in Oxford, that bring me the, the greatest joy, and I think are having change in the world. Genuinely, I, I I have seen more and more how human connection and conversations between individuals building ties and resolving tensions that are so deeply embedded in structures in society. Just think about something we're experiencing now, like the kind of extraordinary moment of, you know, increased consciousness and awareness around, uh, you know, around racial justice. And it's so hard to know what to do at a at a big societal level, and it can be hard to know what to do in our jobs. And it, but, you know, in my community with with the people that are next to me, with the human beings around me, um, I feel like we really can do something meaningful. Um, and I feel that that, you know, builds real change in the world. My wife and I talk about uh, teaching a lot, and. It seems like teaching has shifted. Back in the 70s, you could have kind of the charismatic speaker give a fireside and two or three people might raise their hand and say, I believe, I want to join, I want to be a part of this. But it doesn't work that way anymore. And in terms of teaching the Baha'i faith, and, and of course, the, the main focus of the community building grassroots exercises that Baha'is are doing, the institute process, core activities, whatever you want to nomenclature you want to give them is um is not to convert people to the baha'i faith however for people to become baha'is they need to be nurtured and brought into a fold and brought into a family and loved and socialized with and study together and pray together and serve together and that seems more and more for 2020 what people kind of need and want in order to 
have to consider calling themselves Baha'is or wanting to be a part of something larger. Would you say that's true? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that, you know, we are, we are as Baha'is, what is the, what is the purpose of life? The, the purpose of life is to, to know God and to love God, you know, and that we do that not on our own at the top of a mountain, but we do it by advancing, you know, our own spiritual progress through advancing the spiritual progress of mankind. You know, that's mm -hmm. our twofold moral purpose. Those are the two sort of projects we're working on and they're, they're kind of deeply integrated. And so being part of society and contributing and being of service to others and sharing with others the spiritual insights that we're finding and learning from them about theirs, that is a meaningful contribution to improving the world. And the, the work that, you know, you were describing as a father and building our family and, you know, making families that are more loving and more united and are more of service to humanity, that's a contribution. And so I, I think that, you know, it's in that spirit that we are also sharing with other people our faith and what we're learning about how to do that. Now, I recently did one of these study circles with, um, with a group here in, in Oxford. And, you know, what we call, you and I are talking about these like everybody in the world knows what they are, but the study circles, it's a, you know, it's a, a sequence of courses that is really a way that the Baha'i community has developed for us to learn how to build community. And I see so many people desperate for community. You know, they used to have uh, immediate neighbors that they spent lots of time with who, who were a literal community that they lived in, but now they commute or they live in one part of London and they get on a tube and they go all the way to another part and they, they're not really part of that community. They used to have a sort of religious community. They'd be part of a, of a, of a synagogue or part of a church. And, mm -hmm. and that was another sort of community that they lived in. And, and increasingly, people are living disconnected from those. And they also used to have lots of family around and be used to having connection. And, and many people don't have that. They may live in another place or the families are more dispersed. And so without all of those different types and layers of community, people feel terribly isolated. And in fact, one of the things I've observed is that work, they vest a huge amount of, uh, of sort of hope and dreams in work being the community that they, that they need to sustain mm. them. And that's very hard. It's very hard for workplaces to, to be all that to people. So I think one of the things that we're doing in these courses is we're learning how do you go about building community? And one of the ways you do it is you start getting to know people and you do that by having meaningful conversations with them, not talking about the weather, not talking about this or that, but but talking about things that are really deeply matter to you, to, to people. And then one of the ways you do, you get to build communities, you do things together. You, you, you go and serve and you go and support others and you visit people in their homes and you get to know one another. And so, you know, this sequence of, of courses is a, is a way of learning how to build a community, you know, how to, what's a community in a box or something, you know, and that's something that the world needs. And, you know, I, I think we've lost 
that it's an it's a lost art how to build a community and i think the baha'i community is um is learning how to do that and trying to teach others how to do that as well so one of the things i ask uh participants in this podcast uh much of the time is what is their greatest spiritual struggle i think people like to keep it real i like to hear like where the rubber meets the road like what what are you having a hard time with um is it a a character defect or something you're working on. Um, share what's what's going on with you spiritually. You know, I need to listen more, talk less. That's a, you know, that's a quote from Hamilton. And uh, well, it's not a quote, but you know what I mean? It's from, it's from the wonderful show Hamilton, but it's also a, a very core concept in the in the Baha'i writings um you know that quote says that excess of speech is a deadly poison the tongue is a smoldering fire and excess of speech is a deadly poison and and I I think that you know one of the things that I struggle with is that I think with my mouth open um and I try to understand the world by by talking and that that often crowds out the space for listening. Um, and I am constantly reminded of how much better the world is and how much better I do when I listen, when I, um, where I, when I speak less um, and when I'm able to ask questions more. And, uh, um, and, I, and I love that, that quote from Hamilton, you know, Talk less, smile more. Isn't that the? Isn't that what he sings? Yeah, <laughs> sings. And and there's a truth. There's a real truth to that. That you know, being joyful, <laughs> listening, and and speaking less. Although maybe it's, I'm taking it out of context for the. Yeah, in the, the context of show. Hamilton, that quote uh, has to do with uh, ingratiating yourself politically. <laughs> <laughs> and I, that's absolutely not what I mean, obviously. But I, but but there is. You know, the idea of sort of talking less and listening more, I think, is something mm-hmm. I'm definitely struggling with, as, as you will have experienced on this podcast. <laughs> and uh, tell us about the Baha'i Chair for World Peace. You're on the board, and that's at the University of Maryland. Can you give us a summary of what that is and, and the work that that position fills? What a privilege it's been for me to, uh, to, be, to be a little tiny part of supporting that. Yeah. So this is, uh, you know, one of the finest... Uh, educational uh, academic institutions in 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 the U.S. Um, uh, at which a, a professorship, a chair, was created um, some years ago, called the Baha'i Chair for World Peace, and you know, I, I, it was born uh, in it, it came in response to an extraordinary message of the Universal House of Justice called the Promise of World Peace. Um, which you will know and many of your listeners will have read. And if they haven't, I hope they will turn to. This was, you know, just a um, a seminal message of the Universal House of Justice. And it it was an expose, uh, if you like, and, a, and an extraordinary description of the importance of and the need for world peace and indeed what the, 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 the Baha'i uh, teachings spoke to on this subject in 1985 it was written originally 
And so this uh, chair was created in honor of that and really with the vision of exploring that, that message and the Baha'i teachings on world peace and what they have to offer. And Professor Hoda Mahmoudi, who's had the chair for some years now, uh, what she has done is quite an extraordinary thing. And, and the Baha'i chair is now a very vital and integral part of the academic and student life um, of the University of Maryland. And, and of course, what she has done in that chair is to examine, as the Baha'i writings focus us on, what are the sort of structural barriers to peace? And, you know, one of those is structural systemic racism. And there are many others that she has been exploring. Um, and it's been just uh, a great privilege to see how the... Baha'i community, and well, rather the Baha'i chair and the Baha'i writings have been able to be a, a, a point of integration and contact between all of these different academic disciplines that are looking at different aspects of, um, of peace and of uh, the barriers to peace that there are in society. Uh, and there is something about this Baha'i vision, this sort of holistic Baha'i vision that draws all of those together. And so um, it's been a great, I'm, I'm part of a a board of uh, an international board that tries to support the work of the of the chair um, together with the university as as best we can. Is there more specific ways that that chair is impacting the student body at the University of Maryland and the so ideas I, you, behind that chair? Yeah. So I visited uh, the University of Maryland to attend one of the annual lectures of the Baha'i Chair, and it was just after. Uh, one of these, you know, this the area of Maryland, Baltimore have been a series of terrible uh, incidents of of racial violence in in recent years, as you as you know. And you know, the Baha'i Chair was hosting its annual lecture, at which it had invited students from across the campus to talk about the issue of race and racism as a barrier to peace, and what would have to be overcome in order for you know, peace to be possible. And there were more than 600 students in attendance uh, mm. at this annual lecture uh, that the Baha'i chair was hosting. And, you know, one of the, one of the very special things is a tiny little anecdote, but I, I recall that before Professor Mahmoudi introduced the distinguished speaker who was about to speak, um, she rather surprised the speaker uh, by First of all, introducing the interns who had been working at the Baha'i chair and who had been supporting with the preparations for this event. And with the, and she called each one of them out by name and spoke about the studies that they were doing and the contribution that they had made. And I thought that not only was that event and the 600 students who were present and the distinguished academic speaker who was there, not a Baha'i from, from another one of the fine universities in America, not only was that event important uh, and, and impressive to see what the Baha'i chair was doing, but the way in which Hoda Mahmoudi, the professor, the holder of the Baha'i chair, showed up, the way in which she held that, the way in which she raised up the, the least amongst them in an academic setting, which is you rarely see that happen, was also, I thought, very powerful and a very, you know, very important way of demonstrating what um, what the Baha'i teachings are all about. 
And does the chair look a lot like the Iron Throne from Game of Thrones? What does the chair itself look like? Yes, the chair. <laughs> the chair comes is out it, once. Is a it year. made out of globes? <laughs> a whole series of uh, of planets welded together. Yes. Yes. Um, uh, Sean Hinton, uh, thank you. Are you a doctor in all those degrees you have? Did you get a doctorate in all this? As my children like, remind me regularly, Hinton? no, you can call me that, but but it would be incorrect. As my children remind me, I, I never finished my PhD. I, uh, I never made it back from Mongolia to Cambridge <laughs> to finish the PhD. Okay, so not Dr. Uh, Hinton. Thank you so much for your time, and uh, what a beautiful discussion. And I'm so glad we got to do two parts. We got to visit Mongolia. We got to t- pay a visit to both of our fathers and salute them and fatherhood spiritually and talk about that intersection between work and service. So thank you for your time. I know you're a busy guy. And um, this has just been such a such a inspirational privilege speaking with you. Thank you so much. Well, lovely. And, and thank you so much for making the time, you know, right now in your life with all your you're dealing with and processing and um, it's a wonderful act of service to keep these these podcasts going because you have a a loving and faithful audience who uh, who get so much from these so it's a privilege to be a loving and faithful audience of about three dozen that really enjoy these podcasts <laughs> hey, Most buddy. Of them hey buddy you gotta take Bolivia. it you got to take it where you can get it <laughs> exactly and i hear people my kids when i said hey all joking aside I said, "Hey guys, I'm going to go and do uh, I'm going to go and do a podcast this afternoon." Yeah, I'm doing Rain uh, Rain Wilson's. You're doing Rain Wilson's podcast. Wow, Dad, can I come in? Can I come in while you're on it? So don't you worry. You've really made it. You know you've made it. All right, much love to you, Sean. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Baha'i Blogcast. Hope you enjoyed the episode and the conversation. Check out more fun Baha'i stuff on Baha'iblog.net. Thank you so much, and good night.